And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And this show and next week's show are a special series on the Great Reset. This week, we're going to discuss what the Great Reset is, lay the foundation for it, how it came to be. And next week's show, in case you're a bit depressed after listening to today, next week's show is exclusively about solutions. What we can do, how we can stop it, what tools we have at our disposal. I want to just apologize before we get to the interview for this show not coming out last week. You know I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with technology. I love it. It hates me. Well, I did this interview for the two shows with Justin all in one go. Two, over two hours worth of content. It was really good. When I went to edit it, all my audio was horrible. So I've basically had to go back and record, re-record everything I said. And thankfully, Justin's audio is perfect. Without further ado, here's the interview with Justin. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks again uh, for having me on. Absolutely. You're actually the first guest I've ever had back a second time. And the reason for that is is because you do amazing work both at the, the Heartland Institute, but also you have co-authored a book with my boss, Glenn Beck, on a topic that I think needs proper discussion on the Great Reset. And, you know, I encourage everyone to buy this book. If for no other reason than you went all out on the cover, you know, the cover is a masterpiece. It's Joe Biden. It's Klaus Schwab and George Soros. Who would not love that cover? <laughs> it's a very well-designed cover, <laughs> without Hello. a doubt. It is clear that you and the, the team, when you met, went for the raw sex appeal of, you know, to attract this book because those three men just ooze sexiness. But let's start talking about The Great Reset. And before we do, we need to lay the foundations. We need to talk about how we got here. But also, I want to start with a, a philosophical question for you. Can you give me a simple, raw definition of tyranny? I, I, I would say that it's the, wow, that's a really good question. I would say it's a, the unauthorized use of, uh, I would say it's the unauthorized use of force, um, or I would say the unwarranted use of force, uh, I think would probably be the best way to describe it. Of course, it's going to vary from person to person and from society to society, right? Culture to culture. So that's what makes it kind of uh, complicated. But in my view, it would be the unjustified use of force, uh, especially by a government or by uh, an institution with a significant amount of power. So would you agree then, because we talk about a lot of the similar principles, we talk about a lot of and identify similar problems like the Great Reset, is that these plans 
whether they have different names, you know, whether it's world tyranny, whether it's progressivism, whether it's tyrannical government, whether it's Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, Agenda 2050, the Great Reset, dictators, emperors, all of history. They're all the same in the underlying principles. And that underlying principle is it's the rich and elite of society thinking they have somehow the right to tell other people what to do whether that's true arrogance and they think we just know better than you where we're so rich and we're so successful clearly we can tell you how to live your lives because look at us we're the smart people of society or whether it's true more malice and greed where they just see they can have all this power and money and just make themselves gods effectively yeah without it without a doubt you know it's funny the Great Reset is a slogan, a marketing slogan, really, that developed in 2020. Uh, but this idea has been around forever, as you just alluded to. This is really a human civilization problem. I think the moment we started having civilizations, you started having certain people who amass power for whatever reason, using that power to try to control other people. And really, it's a relatively new um, innovation in human thinking to say, we should give power to the individual person and government uh, should exist to protect the rights of that individual person. That's actually not most of human civilization. Most of our history has involved people at the top controlling everybody else. And they've justified that in a variety of different ways. They've justified it with religion. They've justified this based on security. They've justified it based on um, uh, economic need. Uh, but however they justify it, it's always the same across cultures, across with different languages, different religions, different parts of human history, uh, different technological eras. You always have the same thing where there is a group of people that believe that if they just had more power, we would all be better off and that we're all just a bunch of stupid sheep and they should be the shepherds. I think that's absolutely, the Great Reset is really just the latest uh, innovation on that long strand of, of history where you've had this tradition of elites wanting to control things. I, I think it goes all the way back to, you can find this in the Bible, you can find examples of this. So this is not a, a new thing in that sense. It's just the newest version of it. I completely agree. Human civilization, with the exception of America, was always built on a hierarchy where it divided people. You know, whether you want to talk about it in purely philosophical terms, like uh, Marx said, where you have the bourgeoisie and you have the, the proletariat, whether you want to talk about it in, you know, a, a system that's become very common in America, the class system, you know, you've got upper class and middle class and lower class. Even though no one ever really wants to talk about the lower class or the upper class, it's always the middle class is that somehow noble. What do you want to talk about it on religion, where they're the Jews, they're the bad people, or what do you want to talk about it on race, as in they're not fully human, or whatever whatever logic it is. There's always been a hierarchy of people who think, no, we're better. No, we're the right religion, we're the right race, we're the right people, we're the right knowledge. And what they do is they treat us like, you know, animals and they see us as animals and they create this maze that basically says, we're going to tell you what you can do, how you can do it and when you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Without, without a doubt. And, and there is always this strand of thinking within this, the strain of thinking within this uh, movement that it's really for our, we're, we're going to be better off as a result of it. It's not just that they have power for the sake of power's sake. It's that 
we are all too stupid to know what's good for us. And that when we're all making our own decisions and there isn't someone making the decisions on behalf of society, that we make the wrong choices. And that that leads to all sorts of macro level problems. Uh, Climate change is one of the big examples of that, right? When we're all just out for ourselves, you know, we have a climate change catastrophe and we're all going to die from it. That's the argument they make. And so that's part of it, too. Uh, The the people who are involved in the Great Reset, like all of these other movements that we just alluded to, they're egomaniacs. They're absolute egomaniacs with savior complexes. And they believe while they're simultaneously getting ridiculously rich off of this whole thing, they simultaneously believe we're all going to be better off for it, you know, in the end too. So it is, it is really incredible when you think about this and it's not surprising or shocking that they would just use the newest innovations uh, in technology with globalism, the newest sort of dangers and boogeymen that they've brought out of the closet to continue furthering this agenda that's been that they've been trying to advance for literally thousands of years. It's not surprising that they would do this. It's just there is a, a you know a 2022 twist to it, of course. And the pandemic gave them a perfect justification for starting to roll this whole thing out. And so that was a sort of once in a generation kind of opportunity to advance it. Um, so it was a perfect storm of things, but it's the same ideas that have been around for thousands of years all the way through. Yeah, it's great to hear you say that because one of the things I've seen for the longest time and now that I'm living here, I, I double down on that is, is that we act, if you believe in freedom, and I say this as a collectively, if you believe in freedom, I think a lot of people in America act like freedom is the norm and tyranny is the is the outlier. It really isn't. And I always use this analogy of, you know, imagine your your mother's best apple pie and everything that goes into that pie, you know, all the butter, all the sugar, the flour, the apples, the cinnamon, the water. If you take every gram of all the different ingredients and that makes that apple pie and you were to take one crumb from that apple pie, that at best is the amount of time man has been free. America is exceptional and unique. And I think we water down why America is exceptional when we, we include America in like you know terms like the Western world. Because that makes you the same as Canada, as Ireland, as England. And you're really not. America is different. You're exceptional. You're unique because of a certain set of principles. So my next question to you would be, why is America an exceptional nation to you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it goes back to sort of the foundational ideas that built the country right from the very start. Um, America was founded by people trying to escape Europe and all of the problems and baggage of Europe. And really what they did was, in a a lot of ways, and this developed over time, it wasn't like they just got off the the boat and all of a sudden they had freedom. You know, it was something that developed these ideas. Um, But basically, they took some of the most innovative ideas from Europe, from the Enlightenment, ideas from people like John Locke and and Rousseau and from others, and they pieced them all together and they said, we think we can build a society around these concepts and that we can break off the shackles that existed in Europe with the, the, the sort of class system that existed there, this concept of royalty and the monarchy and the necessity of the monarchy and this and this idea of divine right of kings, which had been around for a very long time in Europe. And we can break away from all of that and we can change, we can reorient society so that the focus is on 
the individual person and the family and the community, and that those people can have the ability to, um, to sort of chart their own course in life and to be the kings and queens of their own castles and that every person can have their own property and do their own things and, and pursue their own dreams. And that idea existed to some extent in Europe, obviously, but it was always stifled by some group of ruling class elites that didn't want that to happen. Or some group of radicals that at first would start out saying, we're going to take all the power away from ruling class elites, and then just ended up taking it for themselves and screwing things up even more. And what made America unique was this idea that there is this inherent right in every single individual person that government does not ever have the right to infringe upon. And that because of that, that right is sacred and needs to be respected as much as possible. And obviously, America did not always do that perfectly. No group of humans have ever done anything perfectly because humans are not perfect. But that idea, that ideal is unique in a way, because I think in every other society, it's always been about something else. It's always been about some sort of religious group, or it's been about some sort of hierarchical system, or it's been about uh, ethnic uh, considerations or something, uh, or class warfare. It's always been about something other than trying to protect and uphold the rights of the individual. When you unleash that, because it really is an incredibly powerful force, when you unleash individual freedom on the world, it becomes, it, it is, it is, there's nothing more powerful than that. People flock to it. The innovators and the, uh, the, the, from all over the world, the innovative people, the people who are desperate to be free, the hardworking people of the world, they flock to that idea. And because they came from all over the world to come to America so that they could have some of that freedom themselves, America became this incredible place, the center of innovation and intellectual thought and, and, and in a way that no other country ever could, because there was never a reason for everyone to go flock to France, you know, just what there was no reason to do that. But here in the United States, we gave people that opportunity. And because of it, we were able to build this flourishing society no one else has seen. And then we became so fat and happy that we didn't realize what we had and we started throwing it away and we defeated all of our rivals all over the world. And we did such a great job that we forgot why we became successful. And then from within we became uh, corrupted and uh, started to everything, the whole foundation that I just talked about eroded because of internal struggles and forces, people destroying us from the inside when no one from the outside ever could uh, and I think that that's what you're starting to see now. It's it's the result of a America really is in a lot of ways of people who have forgotten why they are as successful as they are, and they don't they don't know it. A lot of them don't even care to know it. They don't they're not even interested in thinking about why that's the case. They just want to go to the mall on the weekends and go to the movies and live this prosperous life, and never even really understanding why. And uh, I think the Great Reset is sort of the end result of all of that in a lot of ways that's a really good answer but before we continue you said something that i'm sorry i can't let it slide i cannot in good conscience especially on this show allow you to be smirched the great nation of france oh ho, ho, ho. i'm a french man oh wee 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 and let you get away with it i will say this about the french 
As much as I talk about America being an exceptional and unique nation, France has an exceptionally good talent. It's not an exceptional nation, but it has an exceptionally good talent. And I hope you'll agree with this. They say, I give up and wave the white flag better than any other nation in the history of the world. And the thing that gets me, as much as I mock France, because they are an unusual people, is that they're also our oldest and America's oldest ally. It's just crazy, right? Yeah, that's true. That, yeah, that, is, that is a great point. Both, both points are great points. And uh, they are our oldest ally, and mainly for spite, which is really the, the most interesting thing. They helped unleash freedom in the world. People who didn't really believe in freedom helped unleash freedom in the world pretty much just to spite the British, which is really an incredible thing. So God works in mysterious mm-hmm. ways, right? I know as someone who reads your history, it really is crazy and it's so deep and so diverse. But the thing that always gets me, especially as I'm rereading history and different things now for different projects, is the whole, you know, you don't have an America without France. And it's something that just, it gets me in the stomach. And I know it probably gets most Americans as well, especially if you know your history. But that's just a side point. Moving back to to the Great Reset. You've done a lot of work in over the last couple of years. You've done a lot of research. You've done a lot of reading. And this is now your life in, in so many ways. What can you tell people? What makes the Great Reset different to other tyrannical plans that we've discussed and, and mentioned briefly, you know, like Agenda 2030 and Agenda 2050 and, and progressivism and Marxism? Right. Well, I mean, I think what separates it is um, we've seen the, because really what the Great Reset is at its core is it's a it's a public private partnership sort of on a scale that's never existed before where you have big gigantic multinational corporate interests with billions and billions of dollars big gigantic banks and central banks that are able to print their own money and government and activist groups all coordinating on a global scale uh, in a way that hasn't been possible, I think, in the past, in large part because you didn't have the same level of globalization economically in previous eras. You didn't have the same level of technology. The financial system and monetary systems have evolved over the past 100 years to the point where, you know, it used to be that your dollars or any any currency was tied to some sort of uh, something with inherent value to it. And now it isn't. Now it's just all fiat currency systems all over the world. It took a long time for that to develop. And then it took a long time for that to devolve into what it's become today. And so I think there's a lot of reasons for why it's it's now only able to come about in the way that it is today. But I, but I would think that maybe the biggest reason is, uh, is technology and the monetary system, the development of those two things. Without the ability to sort of communicate instantaneously without the ability to coordinate, without the endless printing of money that is allowed through this fiat system, you really couldn't have this level of coordination between corporations and banks and businesses where it's just instantaneously, all of them can uh, move in one direction and destroy whole nations, essentially, if they really wanted to, uh, on the drop of a hat. I mean, at the drop of a hat. I mean, that's really what we're seeing now with Russia. Um, and rightfully, you know, rightfully so, Russia's terrible. But, but that's the power of what the Great Reset is. It shows you how powerful that weapon is. They can destroy an entire nation's economy whenever they want, if you get in their way, because of this close coordination. And I just don't think in the past that was possible because there were limits to spending, 
limits to money printing, limits to technology. Globalization wasn't as big of an issue. And now all those things have come together for this perfect storm that's led to the Great Reset. Yes, I agree. And the other big difference for me as well is that, you know, the influence of companies and what they think they can achieve. You know, companies have always been involved in, in the body politic. You know, you know, let's take one of the guys on the, the cover of your book, George Soros. He's always been involved, you know, with the, the Open Society, you know, funding people like MoveOn.org, you know, different things. And he's always made his money more felt in politics, you know, obviously then the, the left have their demons out with the, the Koch brothers, you know, all their money in politics, and they've always been able to kind of make some type of influence. But with the Great Reset, it's not just donating to certain causes or to certain candidates. They have decided that they have the power themselves and that they can influence policy, not through government and not through legal processes, but through how they do business, you know, because some of these companies now have become so big, you know, companies like Coca-Cola, they have so much influence that everyone will want the co-contract, you know, whether you're a bottler or, you know, a, you know, making the sugar or making the caps or doing the advertising. If you have Coke as a client, it's massive. So they have realized that they can have all this influence where they're going to go, well, if you want to do business with us, you got to have these sets of standards. You got to have so many people on your board. You got to have so many people of color, so many different minorities. You got to do things a certain way. You got to worry about ESG. Obviously, you have the banks, you know, saying, well, you know, where, who are you investing in? You know, are you investing in fossil fuels? And then, you know, discouraging it. And, you know, they're discouraging it now. But in the future, they'll be like, no, not at all. And um, so they've got this power. And the reason, one of the reasons I love your opinion on this is I think this has come about because of Donald Trump, but not because of the reason everyone would think. Because I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not the biggest Trump supporter. I'm, I'll call when he does something good, I'll say it. When he does something bad, I say it. But like, I'm not involved in your politics as if, as in I have a side or I have a party or I have a candidate. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm the principal guy. I'm the guy who tells stories about your country and why you're exceptional. But one of the reasons I think this came about largely because of Donald Trump is is because of who he represents. He's not part of the ruling class. He's not part of the cool club. Um, I remember a story that, you know, your boss, my boss and your co-author used to always say about, Glenn used to always talk about, you know, when he met with George Bush um, and he was terrified when Obama was becoming president and George sat him down and said, listen, Glenn, you don't need to worry because while there's differences in the campaigns and there's different types of rhetoric, when you get behind this desk, you know, the advice is the same, and generally people will make similar decisions. They mightn't be the exact same, but they'll make similar decisions because the advice they're given by all the people around them will be the same. That doesn't change from left to right. And I remember that, and I kind of go and looking at it now, Donald Trump wasn't part of that. You know, you know, he wasn't part of, you know, he wasn't a senator, he wasn't a congressperson, he wasn't a governor, he wasn't a mayor. He didn't have any real political experience apart from you know talking about things and giving interviews and for me one of the reasons this came about was because Donald Trump represented an outsider as much as his policies that they didn't like he represented an outsider a, a disruption to the ruling class where before you'd have a career progression you know like Joe Biden's career progression is clear Hillary Clinton's career progression is clear even though it was manufactured you know even if Ted Cruz had become president you can see you know he became a senator then became a president Trump just went nope not doing any of that i'm going straight for the the big the, the big office and he won and that's going to disrupt future elections now you're hearing people like the rock running yeah i totally agree um i, I remember you know you talked about glenn beck one of the first conversations that he and i had 
about the great reset in his office. Uh, that was the thing he pinpointed. He said, look, this is the direct result of Donald Trump because he scares the heck out of them. He's someone who is not willing to play ball with the establishment. And he's, he's not going to, he's not going to go along with whatever they want. Sometimes he will, if it's a, if it's a deal, you know, if he can make a deal out of it, then he will. Okay. He's not an ideologue in a lot of ways um, by any stretch of the imagination, but he is not going to go along with toe the line with whatever the establishment wants. And he is truly an America first guy. There was no doubt about that. That was the sort of only ideology the guy had really was that he was America first always. That was the big thing for him. That doesn't mean that his policies always resulted in that outcome, but that was what he believed. And that was his sort of North star always. And for elites who are involved in the great reset, um, that's the worst thing imaginable because for them, everything has to be about international cooperation. Everything has to be about consolidating power internationally, not, uh, cons- not having America lead the way. That's, that's not what any of these people want, including Joe Biden, especially Joe Biden. He's one of the biggest globalists on the face of the planet. And so when Donald Trump won and they didn't believe it was possible, he could win either, right? When he won and disrupted the sort of, uh, the, the plan, which was, you know, we're going to move from George W. Bush, who was in a lot of ways a globalist, to Barack Obama, who was a big time globalist, to Hillary Clinton, who was going to continue on the Barack Obama agenda, have a lot of the same people in the administration. And that got disrupted. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump comes in and starts blowing up everything that that Barack Obama did. That scared the heck out of them. And they said to the, I totally agree with you that they said to themselves at that moment in time, never again, we will never allow someone like this again to win. And that was why they worked so hard to destroy him throughout his presidency. And then through the election, covering for Joe Biden and his millions of scandals, the fact that the guy basically couldn't even leave his basement without embarrassing himself on the campaign trail. No one would even show up to his events. The guy had uh, the the Hunter laptop story, obviously, that they buried and wouldn't even let people talk about publicly. I mean, all of that stuff was the result of fear, fear that we would have more Donald Trump, more nationalism, more pro-America, and that that would continue to disrupt this movement towards internationalism that they've been wanting so desperately. The Great Reset doesn't work with a America first president. It just does not work. And so they had to get rid of him in order for that to happen. And I think that was a big part of it. And I think it catalyzed this whole thing. We got to take advantage of the situation now. And COVID also helped move things along as well. But I would say the combination of those two things was, yeah, that was a huge part of it. So it's ironic you should say that because that leads us actually into our our next part of, you know, unraveling the Great Reset and how it's come about. You know, do you remember what the world was like prior to COVID? Do you have that memory? Because I remember the time. I'm not a political guy. I'm not a a Trumper or an ever-Trumper or Republican or Democrat. I'm I'm the idea guy. I'm the storyteller. I'm the, the constitutionalist. But there was a sense of optimism in America prior to COVID. You know, unemployment was down. Obviously, there were problems with spending and problems with the government growing. But, you know, there was the economy seemed to be sort of, uh, you know, humming along pretty good. And then COVID comes and that optimism has changed. 
what's your biggest takeaway from from COVID? What what lessons have you learned, or what was the biggest change in people that you saw that actually shocked you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, the biggest takeaway for me was how was the speed at which everything descended into tyranny, <laughs> like just full blown tyranny. Just all the, I mean, if you told people two months before the pandemic, two months, if you told them two months before the pandemic, you know, in three months, everyone's going to be locked in their houses. No one's going to be allowed to leave. If you do leave, you're going to have to wear a mask anywhere you go. And we're going to destroy millions and millions and millions of jobs. We're going to print trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that we don't have. We're going to make everybody dependent on the government. You're not even going to be able to go to the grocery store unless we tell you it's okay. And you know what? Everyone's going to willingly go along with it. I don't know that anybody would believe that. I really don't. And yet that's exactly what happened. It was the speed at which it occurred. That's the part that is just so crazy. And I think it's, and that's what's so, and not just in America. I mean, you saw what was happening in Australia. I mean, in other parts of the world where they were literally like keeping people confined in concentration camps in certain situations, locking people in their homes, tracking people, using drones to, you know, see if people were going outside when they shouldn't be. I mean, all kinds of really super bizarre dystopian things. If the media has such a hold on us, uh, not everybody, but has such a hold on many people in society that they really can at any given moment, if the conditions are right, create a crisis so big that people will voluntarily give up all of their freedom. And it has to be the right conditions. They won't do it for just anything. It's got to be a believable threat. They tried it with the climate change thing forever and it didn't really work. But COVID was that was a perfect excuse for them to do all of the authoritarian things that you know would make people like Mao Zedong blush right and they were able to do it without any shots being fired and really without a a lot of people standing in the way of it it was it was really terrifying and if it happened once it can happen again in fact i think you could argue we're more conditioned for it now than we were before because so many people willingly went along with it the last time yes it was an amazing change but the one thing i always I wish Americans could appreciate why, you know, you're different is America was really bad. But for me, watching America respond and how it did gave me hope because you guys stood up. The frightening thing for me, and this is maybe more of a non-American point of view, was was how Irish people acted, how European people acted in that, yes, the media are a problem, yes, that the circumstances have to be right and we give up rights, but the thing that shocked me the most was how we turned on each other and how we so quickly viewed people as the enemy. And normally, like, I'm used to, you know, people viewing it as the enemy if you have a different political opinion, you vote for the different political person or political candidate or party, got it. But there's always, you know, then that goes away and then you still treat each other as normal people. But, like, I don't know if you know the rules in Ireland. Like, the rules in Ireland are really harsh compared to what they were in large parts of America. You know, after the first wave of the pandemic, starting Christmas of 2020, um, I couldn't go more than three miles from my house. And the two legal reasons I could leave was one was to exercise and walk the dog. And the second was to go to what the government considered an essential store. But even when it came to the essential stores, they couldn't sell everything. So like, you know, there's a store that's kind of similar to like Walmart or Target that sells both groceries and sort of clothing. 
and you'd go into the store and like you maybe on the right would be the groceries that would be open and you could do whatever you needed to get and go to the checkouts and you know buy your stuff and leave whereas the store part on the left was all the clothing the socks the underwear the pajamas the t-shirts that was all cordoned off with like yellow tape as if it was a crime scene and you were not allowed to buy anything it doesn't matter whether you needed it or not the government said it was non-essential you don't need it you can't buy it and we all just went along with it but how we turned on people so i'll never forget a quick story for you i was walking the the dog one of the days and where in my area there's you know around the block in a housing um, estate and I'm walking around and there's I'm walking around the corner and uh, from my house and there's this guy sitting standing outside sorry at his wall and he kind of looks you know you know when you see someone's face they're agitated they're angry they're just not amused and I like good morning how are you and he's like I'm not happy I'm like oh what's wrong and he's like them and he points his finger at a you know the neighbors across the street from him i'm like oh what's wrong because like you never know what could happen you know did something happen or did they park the car in the wrong place is their dog always barking you know different things people get agitated with neighbors because you know the, the geography of ireland and england is our houses are connected a lot of your houses aren't you know you got like you know garages and you know gr- grass and you know sidewalks between each of house you've separated housing we don't um so like you know if a neighbor does something bad it can affect you and i was like oh what do they do and he's like, um, that guy over there is meeting with his mother, and they're not meeting outside. And I'm like, oh. And he's like, yeah, and I know for a fact she lives more than three miles from his house. He shouldn't be allowed to see her. Why is this wrong? And I'm like, okay, have you nothing else to worry about? And this guy legit wanted to call the cops. This is the craziness of how we just turned on each other and we were willing to call the cops on our neighbors for such a violent crime as a son wanted to see his mother. Yeah, I agree with you. And you, and there were stories like that here too. There were plenty of, of instances where people were, you know, reporting their neighbors. Uh, you had police showing up at Thanksgivings and, and, you know, breaking up Thanksgiving dinners and stuff like that. I mean, It was it really was madness and on a scale that we just have never seen before. We've just never seen neighbor turn on neighbor so quickly Um, and over something that over over something that wasn't even scientifically. It wasn't like they could scientific. It wasn't like 50 percent of the people who got covid were dying. Right. When you could just understand the just pure panic of it. Right. It didn't scientifically make sense. The reaction was not in line with the threat, but because the media presented it in a way that people were, you know, found somewhat believable, they were willing to throw people under the bus, people they liked, friends, neighbors. I knew someone, I I actually met someone who uh, refused to allow their, um, they had a new baby and they refused to allow their parents to come see the new baby because they wouldn't get vaccinated. Now they didn't have, it wasn't that they didn't have COVID. That wasn't enough. It was that they weren't vaccinated. They could even take a test and test that they didn't have COVID. That wasn't good enough. They had to get vaccinated too on top of it to see their own grandchild. They wouldn't let them come. And eventually it got so bad that the grandparents went, even though they didn't want to get vaccinated, they went out and got vaccinated purely so that they could see the grandchild. There was no other way for them to do it. I mean, that's insane. This is this is a child turning on their parents in a moment when, you know, this is a this is a 
once in a lifetime type of thing. And they wouldn't do it even with just a COVID test. It wasn't enough. Insanity. Even though there was no evidence that showed that infants are especially susceptible to getting COVID or anything like that, it didn't matter. It, it does, there was something really truly terrifying and inhumane about the whole thing. And it does make me wonder if we ever have something that's like COVID, but maybe even a little bit worse uh, in terms of the death rate or whatever, then what, then what, then what, I mean, do we just go into full blown, you know, concentration camps? Is that the next step? You know, people who won't comply, honestly, you, that would sound crazy 10 years ago, but can anybody really truly say that that's crazy now? I don't think so. I mean, they're doing it. They're doing it in other parts of the world, like China and elsewhere. I wouldn't be surprised if things got a little bit worse with COVID. I, I wouldn't have been surprised to see that here in the United States or in Europe or anywhere else for that matter. And that, that shows you there's a fundamental problem uh, with the education system, with history, you know, just in general, with people understanding of history and everything else. Uh, it's a problem with the culture and with education and with society. It's not just a policy problem or a propaganda problem. It's, it's at a core, core level. And we got to get that fixed or else the next opportunity people get to, to go full-blown authoritarian, I don't know if we're going to be able to survive it. I completely agree how much we have changed. Like if you had said to me two months prior to COVID happening and becoming a reality that, hey, John, I've got a, I've got a crystal ball here. I'm going to predict what Ireland looks like in two months. And everyone is going to be in their house. And that all the older people who are Catholic, who go to Mass, usually sometimes once a day, every day, five days a week, and then once on the weekend, they're not going to be able to go to church. They're not going to be able to get communion. They're not going to be able to get confession. And by the way, at the exact same time, all the younger people and older people who love going to the pub for their pint of Guinness and, you know, their shot of Jemison or whatever they like to drink, that's not going to happen. What will the country look like? Will they accept it? I would have went, there will be a civil war before that happens. But what happened? Everyone accepted it. All the older people accepted they couldn't go to church for the greater good. All the young people decided to drink at home instead of the pubs for the greater good. And we, not a bullet, not a shot, not a referendum, not anything was discussed. It was just accepted. So why are you talking about this right here? I thought we were going to talk about the Great Reset. The thing you need to know about the Great Reset is it needs the right conditions to happen. They're always looking for a crisis. Never let a good crisis go to waste, as the old saying goes. But what you have in, in COVID has shown we're accepting of tyranny. The next crisis, and they've already said this, is the climate crisis. But here's the thing of why you should care about the Great Reset in this sense, is this. Poll after poll, the American people do not care about climate change. It comes out from whatever side. What's the biggest issue of the day? Climate change is never the big issue of the day. Heck, most times it doesn't even break the top 10 issues of the day. But here's the thing about the Great Reset. With public-private partnerships, a term you're going to hear a lot more going forward is they don't need to get you to vote for this. This does not need to be done by executive order. This will be done through public-private partnerships, through ESG scores, through banks not lending, through insurance companies not giving insurance policies. They are going to tell you climate change is the biggest deal and their policies are here to save us. But the thing you need to remember is green is the new red. 
And that is why climate change is going to be the next crisis these people are going to use to get your money and to take power from you and to lord it over you. Yeah, without without a doubt. It's so important for people to understand that the reason why the Great Reset is so important is because the interests involved are so powerful that they have the ability to go around any sort of legal protections that you would normally have from government tyranny or, uh, and it's, and it's not just about, you know, what kind of car you can drive and what kind of house you can buy and whether you're eligible for a loan or not, which are all things that are tied up with this climate change, environmentalism type thing related to the great reset, because all the financial institutions are in on it. All the big wall street firms are in on it and they're imposing their will through corporations and the banking system and everything else. But it's really, it's anything they want it to be at any given time. And so climate change is a very convenient justification if they can get people to buy it. It's a very convenient justification to to reset the entire global economy, because obviously, if we're all going to die from climate change, then you can justify any sort of action in order to stop that from happening. Right. Um, But what if you don't even need to convince people, as you alluded to, right? Because all of the banks and all the financial institutions and everybody with power has gotten together and decided, you know what, we don't really care what people want or what they think. We want to reset the global economy and we're going to say climate change is our justification. And that will, you know, help uh, alleviate at least a little bit of the pressure because some people will agree with us and we'll just go out and change the world any way we want. And we'll use that as our justification for it. And no one will be able to stop us because if we cut off their money, if we make it so that you can't get a loan from us which is what all of the major banks in the United States and most of the major banks in Europe that I'm aware of have all said that by, uh, depends on the bank and and whatever, but it's usually over the next 20 to 30 years, they're going to phase out all lending, all banking services of any kind to people who are not going along with the climate agenda, all of it. So that means if you want to buy a house that isn't sufficiently green, whatever that means, you're not going to be able to do it. If you want to buy a car, You're not going to be able to do it unless it is an electric car. You're not going to be able to get your energy from someone that isn't producing it in a way that they say is green enough. You're not going to be able to buy a product that was produced by a factory that was using coal-fired power or natural gas or whatever. They're going to make it so that the entire system requires you to go along with it because you won't be able to get a a checking account unless you go unless you agree to comply you won't be able to buy a house you won't be able to get electricity you won't be able to do anything and it's not just banks and financial institutions there's also some of the one of the biggest ones i think actually that doesn't get a lot of attention because it's not as sexy as the banks which is sort of a weird thing to say i guess but it's true <laughs> is the insu- is the insurance companies mm-hmm. um all the insurance companies are in on it too. So what they've been doing is they've been saying, we're going to phase out all of the non-green energy related stuff from their portfolios over the next 20 or 30 years. So what does that mean? That means if you want to go buy a house, you have to pro- you have to get insurance. You have Before you get the mortgage signed off and you get a, a mortgage from a bank, you have to show them that you can get the house insured. Otherwise, they won't even give you the mortgage. But if the insurance company says to you, sorry, but you don't have solar panels on your house. Therefore, we're not going to insure you. You can't get the mortgage even if the bank wants to give it to you. So in order to actually get the mortgage to buy the house, you have to do whatever the insurance company says. 
So the insurance company says you got to put solar panels on it, then that's what you have to do, regardless of what the bank says. The same thing would be true with the car. If the insurance company says, sorry, but we're not going to insure your business because your business isn't all the, the company vehicles are not electric vehicles. Uh, so we're not going to insure you then good luck going to the bank and getting a loan for the new building that you want to buy or whatever, because why would they give you a loan if you can't even get insurance? And on and on we go, right? The scenarios play out. There's a, a million different ways that it plays out. But the point is, if all the institutions are acting together to set the rules for society, apart from government, without any kind of accountability elect, in terms of an election, if they're doing that apart from all of this, then you have no way of standing up for yourself if they're all doing it at the same time. Not only that, but if all these social media companies and all of the media are, are in on it too, you can't even talk about it because they'll silence you. They'll cut you off. They'll say you're not allowed to say anything negative about you know the switch to electric vehicles because that means that you're a climate change denier and that you're contributing to the death of humanity. And so we're going to silence you. Or you're not sufficiently, you know, advocating for racial equality or equity. Therefore, we're going to silence you or whatever it is. And can you go to your government and say, this is a violation of my first amendment? No, you can't. Because there is no constitutional protection for, uh, from, the from some private corporation doing these things to you. And that's the genius of the system. It's a public-private partnership because... Government couldn't figure out a way in America to do all of these things to people on its own because of the Constitution, because of elections, because of all that. They couldn't figure it out. So instead, they said, you know what, let's just buy off the corporations. We'll get all the banks in on it together. We'll work together. We'll all get rich. We'll all be really powerful. We'll all get to say we saved the world, satisfy our egos, uh, live out our fantasies as saviors. And on top of it, we get to rewrite society and no one can stop us. And that is exactly what has happened with the Great Reset. And it's working out exceptionally well for them, <laughs> to be totally honest. Yes, and this is exactly why we must care about the Great Reset. Because there's an old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And that's what the Great Reset provides. Because if they want a way of life, they will do it through government. Or they'll do it through the courts. Or they'll do it through executive order. But if none of those are an option, what will they do? They'll go to a business. They'll go to a bank. They'll go to an insurance company. They are determined to make their way of life the way of life for everyone. And that is, quite simply, tyranny. My last question for you on this is this is you've been doing a lot of research, you're studying all these different organizations and people involved and people like Klaus Schwab. On the climate change, are these people ideologues who literally believe in climate change, that it is going to end the world? Or are they literally opportunists who see the way the tide is going and see this is how we make a quick book and we're going to follow it? I think I, I honestly think it's a mix of things. I think some of them are purely opportunists who are just trying to make money. I think it's the only way to explain some of the behavior. How, how, how can you explain Barack Obama buying a, a multi-million dollar mansion on an island uh, that he his own government said was going to be swallowed up by the oceans because of climate change? The part literally, the study said the part of the the beach where he would be living would be swallowed up. Yet he bought a mansion there after that report came out. How does that make any sense? That doesn't make any sense. How do you, how can, why would these people fly around on private jets uh, emitting all sorts of fossil fuels? Uh, there are, there's definitely a group of them 
Uh, many of them have gotten rich off of fossil fuels, directly or indirectly. Uh, Tom Steyer is one of those people, made his whole fortune off of this. So how do you explain that? Part of it is just opportunity. I think the other part of it is um, some people really do truly believe this. And um, they think that because in their minds, the scientific community has signed off on this, that that means it must be true. It is going to happen. The climate models, which are really just predictions in a computer, are accurate. And, and, they, and they really do believe it. And they'll do anything to stop it. And in a way, I'm, I feel more you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world kind of fall into that camp. I feel much more uh, uh, affinity towards someone like Greta, who truly believes we're all about to die from climate change. Because if I truly believe that we were all going to die from climate change, then sure, it makes sense to, you know, have the great reset and whatever, at least to some degree, it makes sense. It's more logical than just saying we shouldn't do anything. Um, but I think most of the power players they will literally, they've been looking for a crisis that they can use to justify all of the things that climate change allows them to justify. And that's the main motivation for them. But there's a bunch of useful idiots who are in the pot as well, who go along with it because they truly have been convinced that this is a crisis that needs to be solved. And I think COVID was the same thing. Some people understood that it really wasn't quite as bad as the, or nowhere near as bad as some people were saying. Uh, but others really did just truly believe this was the end of the world and we would all, they would die if they walked outside their house without a mask on. And so it just, it's a mix of those things. It's really an alliance, I think, of those two groups. So climate change looks after the fear. But to enact great change, you need money. You need capital, right? And that brings us to the next foundational stone of the Great Reset, of how it becomes a reality. And that is through a modern monetary theory, MMT. This, as someone who has read a lot of history, both American and world history, is probably the most scariest thing I've ever read. Not because of what it stands for, not because of who's behind it, but because never before can I point to a point in time in history where a people and a government so drastically altered their approach and there's not one debate, not one discussion, not one vote, not one executive order. In fact, I guarantee you, if you went to D.C. today and you met with all the Republicans and the Democrats in both the House and the Senate, and then you met with President Biden and Vice President Harris, and just for kicks and giggles, we'll throw in former President Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence. And you met with all of them, and you only had one question. You went up to them and went, hey, what's MMT? I guarantee you 99.999% of the politicians you would meet would have their Gary Johnson, what is Aleppo moment. They would look at you at a blank stare, MMT, what, mountain time? What? I have no idea what you're talking about. But yet, it has been practiced on a daily basis within our great country. So Justin, can you give me a definition of what modern monetary theory is and what it means? Right. So it's, it's, it really started out as sort of a, at a very fringe economic theory amongst um, not even a very prominent group of academics is how it started. But the basic premise is if you are a, if you have a fiat currency system like we have in the United States and they have in various other countries around the world, 
and you control your own currency, meaning it's not pegged to some other currency that is controlled by some other central bank, but you're your own country, you have your own fiat currency system, and you control that currency yourself, you can effectively print, create, introduce into the economy as much new money as you possibly want, whenever you want, in order to uh, get to full employment in an economy, in order to get it fully roaring. You can just print as much of it as you want without worrying about debts or deficits ever. So you should never worry about the national debt. You should never worry about deficits, a budget deficit. None of that matters in, a, in, in this sort of environment, according to this theory, so long as you don't have inflation. Once you get inflation, then you have to do things in order to stop that inflation from happening. Does that mean you stop printing money? No, it does not. What it means is you control the parts of the economy that are causing the inflation. So for example, if energy prices are skyrocketing and you think that's the cause of the inflation in the economy, then you enact government controls that bring the price of the energy down by, say, price fixing or creating subsidies or doing something like that to try to bring the cost of energy down to control the inflation. But absent that runaway inflation, you don't have anything to worry about with debts and deficits. You print as much money as you need. It really doesn't matter. It's all fictional. And this theory, which started out as a fringe theory, has over time become the standard operating practice of the United States and really a bunch of other places around the world. But the Federal Reserve System in the United States, our central bank here, is the driving force behind it. They are, in effect, printing trillions and trillions of dollars. They've been doing this now for several years. About 80% of all the money in existence today was printed within the last few years. (laughs) So that's modern monetary theory. That's what it is. And they're not worried about, they were never worried about debts and deficits until they started getting the inflation. And then they said, well, gee, we better do something about it. But now the problem is so big, it's incredibly difficult for them to solve it. Um, And they don't have the laws in place that the sort of academic minded modern monetary theory people would like to have in order to micromanage the economy enough to stop the inflation, which I don't think would work anyway. But that's the theory in sort of from a big level, that's the theory and that's how it works. And, and really we've been running on this now for a while, including under Donald Trump. That's, that's really when this thing got super out of control. There's an old analogy. You put a frog into, into boiling water, it's going to jump out. If I woke you up tomorrow and you've been in a coma for 10 years and I said, Hey, real quick, we're going to add $2 trillion to the deficit this year alone. Anyone going to have any problem with that? Most people are going to go, eh, no, that's not good. That's not sound. That's not good fiscal policy. Even Democrats, ten year, if you've been in a 10-year coma, will be like, that's not good. No, do not do that. But the thing you need to understand in that analogy is if you put a frog into water and you slowly boil it, it won't ever leave. Now, I don't know how apt that analogy is. I've been told by a few people it's not the most accurate and scientific, but let's just use it. How did America get to where it is today? Because you need to know your history. Because you've been boiling the debt up for a long period of time. I don't know if you know this trend, Justin, but this started in 1948. I'm going to give you some figures, and I'm going to share share the figures really quickly and slowly so that you can see them, and also you can see the proof in the pudding. But I'm going to show you the precedent. What the precedent is, is whatever a president adds in the last four years or eight years of a term, the next president will go on and double that deficit. 
There's only one exception. Let me give you the numbers. So 1948, Truman's second term. He adds $6.8 billion to the deficit. A colossal number back then. Eisenhower comes to power in 1952. And in his first four-year term, the debt is added to by $13.6 billion. Doubling the 6.8 from Truman. His second term, he repeats it. And his total debt for added in those eight years was $27.2 billion. Then the Kennedy-Johnson campaign goes to the White House. And they add $25.4 billion. I'm including Johnson even though his second term, his first term. I'm including him in Kennedy. His term was $35.8 trillion, Giving a combined total for that eight year period of $61.2 billion to the debt. Nixon comes to power in 68, and over the next four years, America adds $79.6 billion in his first term alone. His total was $272 billion because his spending skyrocketed in his second term under Ford and Nixon. Carter comes to power in 76. He adds $287 billion. Reagan comes to power in 1980. In his first term, he adds $664 billion. And his second term was a trillion, giving a combined total of $1.69 trillion added to the debt. Clinton is the exception, because in 92, he comes to power. He adds a combined $1.6 trillion. Same as Reagan added in his eight years. Then Bush comes to power. First year, first term. He adds $1.7 trillion to the deficit. In four years, adds more than what Clinton did in eight. In his second term, spending went even up, even more, for a combined total of $4.3 trillion. This, according to Barack Obama, was unpatriotic. And in Barack Obama's first term, he added $6 trillion to the debt. And 3.5 in his second term, giving a combined total of $9.5 trillion added to the American deficit. Then breaks with Trump. Trump, in four years, added $7.3 trillion, more than Obama did in his first term. Obviously, Trump, for whatever reason, didn't win re-election. And Biden, in two years, is at $3.5 trillion. How quickly and how much we have missed since Truman's $6.8 billion adding to the deficit. It's almost like they're progressing towards their utopia, towards their status demand. Without a doubt. I totally agree with you. And I think that that's um, why the progressives of the early 1900s were so keen on creating a central bank that would be able to use a fiat money system that was not tied to gold or to something like that. That, that was always the long-term goal for them was to get off of that because they understood that if it's tied to something, um, if it's tied to a real asset, and there's problems with tying it to gold. I'm not saying that's perfect or whatever, but if it's tied to a real asset, it becomes, you can't just print as much of it as you want, right? You just, you can't do it in the same way that they can now. That's why it was so important for them to have a fiat currency system. Because if, if uh, he who has the gold makes the rules, right? That's what they say. But what if you can make your own gold? <laughs> then you then you can do whatever the heck you want, right? You make the rules and you can make you can become as powerful as you could ever possibly want to be. And that is sort of the allure of this fiat money system. The only limit on it is people's perception of it getting out of control. As long as people believe 
that this is okay, you can keep doing it because that's the whole idea behind fiat money is it's only valuable if people believe that it's valuable and its value is related to its perceived value. It's all just this sort of matrix-like illusion that we all just collectively buy into. And I think that that's, you're exactly right. Over time, they've introduced this idea very slowly that, you know, we can have, we can print more, we can have more debt. This crisis, this war, this thing, beating communists, whatever it is, fighting terrorists, there's always a justification, beating COVID, beating climate change, whatever. There's always a crisis that needs to be solved and we can't worry about the debt or deficits when that crisis happens. And over time, it gets worse and worse and worse until you wake up one day and they're printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And it seems ins- it seemed would have seemed insane 10 years ago, but now it's just everybody wakes up and says, oh, whatever, it seems to be working out okay, except it's not working out okay. It's a disaster. It's just people don't understand how any of this stuff works. So they don't know it's a disaster. And unless the media tells them it's a disaster, most average people will never know it. And of course, they're not going to do that because it furthers their agenda. Uh, and this this is exactly why you end up with the Great Reset. Because you can't buy off corporations effectively without the endless printing of money. You can't, you can't control the system through the financial system and banking without the endless printing of money. That's the only way that it works. Otherwise, corporations are going to go in the direction of sort of the free market approach. They're going to try to win over customers. That's the main way they're going to make money. So they're not going to do things that alienate their customers. But what they've done is they've created a system where the primary customer, the primary people they're concerned about are banks, financial institutions, Wall Street firms. Those are the people who they care about most. They're the primary customer. So in a way, it's still a marketplace. It's just the people who control it are a handful of people instead of just everyday consumers, which is the way that it used to be. Yes. And that's a question I get a lot. You know, people... You know, exp- you know, who love America, who love the free market, who love business, and they go, why would businesses ever, ever go along with the Great Reset? Why, why would they support the destruction of the America that we love? And the thing about you need to understand is that because it's easier, because it's easier doing business. Imagine you're a business owner, and you have two options, right? One is you have a massive contract over here. And the thing you need to understand is how vast your spending has become. Like, I follow your politics, I don't get involved in it, but I follow and I discuss the issues with you on this show every week. But can you remember the last spending bill that didn't have a trillion dollar price tag? Now just imagine that, a trillion dollars. Imagine you're some business, you have option one. You can go over here and you can get even 0.01% of that trillion dollar contract. You deal with the government, you get paid on time, and you just have to make sure that you fulfill your promise. Or you have option B. You can deal with the public. You can offer your service. How many products do you need to sell? Or how many services do you need to sell to get 0.1% of a trillion dollars to the people? How many complaints do you have to deal with? How many advertisements do you have to deal with? How many sports stars or celebrities do you have to do to get endorse your products? How many returns? How many customer services phone calls do you have to deal with? Look at all the work. Now, just think about it from a business point of view. Which one would you go for? And that's why people are going first. Thoughts? Yeah, I think for the most part, for the most of the people involved with the Great Reset, it's primarily about money and power 
sometimes together. Sometimes one is more important than the other. It depends on who you're talking to. But ultimately, I think that that is the driving force behind all of this. The reason why corporations go along with it is because they can make money off it. Not just because the government prints money to have spending programs, but really more important than that, uh, because the central bank is just creating money out of thin air and then funneling it into the financial system directly without it even going through the, the government, a government spending plan. So you don't even need a law. The Fed just creates money. They buy assets. That's how they, they do it through open market operations. They buy up assets. They buy up corporate bonds. They, uh, they do reverse repo loans. They do all this crazy stuff that nobody knows anything about. And it filters money, it funnels money directly into the financial system, which then when it has this flush with cash, gives it to people. And who are they going to give it to? They're going to give it to their buddies. They're going to give it to the big institutions that they trust, that they know will pay them back with these loans and with everything else, right? And by keeping the interest rates really, really low, they are creating massive amounts of money coupled with all the open market operations type stuff they do with the Fed buying up assets. They're creating massive amounts of money, trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's all being filtered through the financial system, which ends up in the hands of Wall Street people. And they're now using ESG scores, social credit scores and things like that to determine who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and all based on who they like and who they don't like. And if you're a corporation, you want in on that. Not only do you want in on that because you get lots of money without having to win over customers, do the hard work of developing new products and services and marketing and all of that, but also because you have groups like BlackRock whose wealth has skyrocketed over the past 10 years. Uh, they now have $10 trillion in wealth, BlackRock, $10 trillion in wealth. They now own more stock than anybody else in the world. If BlackRock comes to you and says, we own a bunch of stock in your company, and we've got a bunch of other investors who have sided with us and said, we want you to enact XYZ policy. And if you don't, we're going to fire you. Well, what are you going to do if you're on the board of directors of that company? You're going to do what they tell you because they're offering you on the one hand, lots of money uh, indirectly through the stock price and everything else. And on the other hand, they're going to just remove you. They're going to vote the shares and they're going to remove you because ownership of shares in a corporation is the same as votes in the company. So you can vote out leadership of the company and put people in place who will do whatever you want. And so from the corporation's perspective, it makes total sense to do this. It doesn't make sense to fight these people with trillions and trillions of dollars. It doesn't make sense to fight the banks. It doesn't make sense to fight the central banks. It doesn't make sense to fight the government that regulates you. It doesn't make the sense to fight BlackRock and the, and the asset managers and owners on Wall Street that own your stock. It makes no freaking sense. What makes sense is to do whatever they tell you because they're going to make you wealthy in the process. A lot of these leaders of these corporations own stock themselves. They're going to get wealthy off of all of this. The asset prices are going to keep skyrocketing because of all the money printing. And you're always going to be, as a big institution, big corporation, big bank, big Wall Street firm, the first to get access to the new cash. And it's only after the fact that it filters down in indirect ways to other people. And so it makes total sense for you to go along with this system. And I do think that money is a huge part of it. And then, oh, by the way, you also get to sleep at night knowing that you're saving the planet on top of it. You're saving the world. You're advancing the equity. You're doing all this. And it just so happens that all of this is great for you and works out wonderful for you too. So it's a win-win. And that's, that's how these people, I truly think, uh, uh, sleep at night. They believe that they are not only getting rich, 
everybody's better off as a result of it too. Last question on MMT before we get to the main event of The Great Reset. Like most things in the world, when it comes to politics, when it comes to paragraphs, there is very much a, an anti-freedom element or an anti-prosperity element of this control. They might tell you that you're going to be better off, but you're really not. And that's included in The Great Reset, um, this modern monetary theory. And the reason I think there's an anti-American, anti-prosperity, anti-freedom movement is, is because if you look at the facts of America, they're very clear for everyone to see. You inspired at your founding a 5,000-year leap. So many things that we have today, we've taken for granted. They became possible because of innovation, because of creativity, but because the marketplace allowed people to be creative. That didn't really happen prior to America. And what they're doing right now is they're laying the groundwork because they understand something philosophical, but also from a practical point of view. Is it easier to build someone up or is it easier to tear someone down? That's a philosophical question. And the answer is always, usually, it's much easier to tear someone down and peg them back than it is to inspire someone to take a big leap forward. Why is this key that you need to understand? Margaret Thatcher once had a great exchange with a socialist MP in the House of Commons where she basically gave it this great quote. She's like, you're okay with the poor being less poor, more poor as long as the rich are less rich. The Great Reset knows something. The people in power know something. That it's easier to tear America down, to drag America back a couple of pegs, to harmonize the rest of the world so we have real equality and there's no standouts than it is for to bring the rest of the world up to America's standards. And this is proven by one of the people that's mentioned in this book at length, a lady called Stephanie Kelton. And her own words prove it. Because she's a big proponent of MMT and she gave this opinion piece where she spoke about when she was asked about, hey, well, there's no, give me the success of MMT. Where has it worked? And she used Japan. Can you share the facts of what the Japanese economy is like, Justin? Yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing. If you read MMT literature, if you read modern monetary theory literature, you read The Biggest Advocate, Stephanie Kelton is, is first among them. Um, she was is a very highly influential figure, by the way, uh, was at one point the chief economist for the Senate Democrats, was the chief uh, economic advisor or a key economic advisor, senior economic advisor, I think, for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, not just once, but twice. So this is a very influential person, was involved with the Biden. Uh, when Biden, before he be was elected president, there was this big sort of unity uh, thing between Bernie Sanders and the Joe Biden camp where they came up with a whole new platform. Stephanie Kelton was involved in that. Bernie Sanders brought her in. So she's very, very influential. Um, they always go to Japan. That's their big thing. And the reason why is because Japan has printed tons and tons and tons of money. They've essentially lived out modern monetary theory. Their debt to GDP ratio, as bad as it is in America, it's way worse in Japan. It's like well over 200% or something like that in Japan. <laughs> yeah, it's a disaster. And over the past 30 years or so, the GDP in Japan has essentially been, it hasn't grown at all. I mean, literally no GDP growth. And depending on the period of time you're looking at, they've had negative GDP growth over like a 30 or 40 year period, which by American standards would be considered like a Great Depression level event. And this is what has been going on in Japan for decades and decades and decades and decades. They've had no economic growth. And the reason for that is largely, I mean, 
They have no population growth. That's a big part of it. Um, they have negative population growth in a lot of ways. Over time, it's going to be very bad for them uh, in terms of their population. They're getting older and older and older, and they have this welfare state where they got to take care of all these older people, and they don't have young people to replace their jobs. They've had to ship all their jobs overseas as a result of that. They used to have all this manufacturing. They can't have it there now because they don't even have the population. Uh, but it's also because of modern monetary theory, because they've devalued their currency for 40 years at minimum. They've put government in charge of virtually everything directly or indirectly. They have private part of uh, these public private partnership model is very popular over there. The corporations work hand in hand with the government and the central banks there. Things are so insane over there that the pensions in Japan, which are very important in Japan are required to buy government bonds for no inch for no return. <laughs> so they have to buy the pensions have to buy government bonds for no return. And then the, the, the banks over there, the central bank turns around and buys American uh, treasury bonds and they get a return on it. So it's a giant scam. They're literally just like stealing money from the pension systems over there. But that control, that centralization of control, the endless printing of money, modern monetary theory in action has been a total disaster in Japan. That's why they have no economic growth there. And, um, and that's why they've had literally like four decades that have been totally lost uh, as a result of it. And they're in a worse situation than we are because in America, because uh, they're surrounded by China and by uh, North Korea and by countries that hate their guts and hate the West and hate everything about them and would and historically have all these rivalries and issues and, and things that go back many, many, many centuries. They would love to wipe out Japan. I mean, at least in America, we don't have to worry about, you know, Canada invading America or Mexico or something like that. Like, you know, we're not worried about that. But in Japan, that's a huge problem for them. So what we're seeing is one of the most powerful countries in the world in total decline as a result of modern monetary theory. And most people in America... A, know nothing about Japan, B, know nothing about modern monetary theory, and C, have no idea that we're enacting modern monetary theory and we're following the exact same course of action. So trying to stop it is incredibly difficult because you have to explain like five different steps before you can get to the payoff of modern monetary theory is going to kill America like it killed Japan. You have to know a lot of different things before you can ever get to that point in time. And that's Part of the reason why this thing has continued forward, because no, the average person walking down the street doesn't know any of this stuff. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote the book, but it's, it's going to require more than a book by Glenn Beck and Justin Haskins. You need to have widespread discussions and conversations about this all across the board if we're going to stop this thing. And yeah, I'm, I'm terrified that we're not going to be able to pull that off before it's too late and we've gone so far down the road that there's no turning back. Now it's time for the main event, folks. It's time to actually talk about the Great Reset. We hope that you've enjoyed it. We've given you definitions of tyranny. We've spoken about how climate change is going to be used as the excuse and the fear to enact this Great Reset. We've spoken about how MMT is going to finance this. But now it's time to talk about the Great Reset. And just a word of warning. 
in case you're listening to this show and you are a bit skeptical or you're a bit afraid and you're like, oh my God, John, I just want to give up. I want to put my head on the pillow and wave the white flag and be a French person and just give up. Next week's show is another special, again with Justin Haskins, where we're going to spend the whole show talking about solutions because there are plenty of solutions. So do not lose hope. Share this show and share this next week's show, the solutions, with everyone you know. They need to know about this great reset. And that's where we're going to start. So, Justin, to those who are listening right now who are like, you know what, I'm a bit skeptical of what you're saying, but let's say everything you say is true. This is not going to affect my life. It's not going to have any impact on me. It's not going to change my way of living. What would you say to those people? I would say that it's delusional and that it's it's undoubtedly going to affect their lives, that it's already affecting their lives in ways that they don't necessarily see or understand But what they need to know is that the Great Reset involves not just lots of money printing, not just public-private partnerships in this sort of broad way where they're all just sort of in this abstract sense working together on things. There is a system in place, and it's very specific and very narrow-minded, and it has metrics. It's a social credit system. Uh, People have probably heard about ESG scores. We've referenced it in passing a few times here. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Metrics, ESG. And um, ESG scores is, is, a, is already widely in place. It's something that developed really first in China uh, on a system-wide level. They actually have ESG as sort of a version of ESG scores for individuals as well as for businesses in China. In the United States, about 80% of corporations, and this data is a couple of years old, 80% of corporations in the United States already have ESG in place, their own ESG reports where they're producing social credit scoring reports. Uh, There's dozens and dozens and dozens of metrics in these social credit scoring um, reports that they put out. Um, A lot of them are related to climate change, your carbon footprint. Uh, Some of it has to do with just environmentalism, like how big are your facilities? What do the facilities in your supply chain look like? How much plastic do you use? How much water do you use? Things like that. Um, But in addition to that, there's Things that say, uh, how much money are you giving to social causes, social justice causes in your community? That's an ESG metric in some of these scoring systems. Um, How many, what's the ratio of various racial demographics in your workforce? So literally they look at what the percentage of Asian workers to Hispanic workers or black workers to Hispanic workers or white workers to Asian workers in your workforce. And based on what they think the right ratio should be relative to the demographics of your society, they give you a higher score or a lower score. Uh, I've seen ESG reports that gave pretty mediocre scores to Facebook because Facebook wasn't doing enough to censor speech. They needed to censor more speech. So they got, they got a lower ESG score. So that's, this is a system. It's a system with specific metrics that say you have to do this in order to get access to, to what? To banking services, to loans, to investments, uh, to have a good bond rating, all of these corporate bond ratings. Corporate bonds are the primary way big corporations raise money for new projects that they're going to do. So if they want to expand their business, they might issue a bond that people buy in a bond market. How do they know what the cost of that bond is, the interest they have to pay on it and other things? Um, they, it's determined based on by credit agencies like Moody's Investment Serv- Investor Services and Fitch Ratings and things like that, S&P. 
And they base it in part on your ESG score. And how do they know what your ESG score is? Because these corporations are all producing ESG scores. So it's this very elaborate system to rework society behind the scenes. So all these corporations, um, which make up a huge part of our society, the kinds of products and services that you buy, the kinds of things you're allowed to say on social media, what Google search results you get, all of this is based on, in part, impacted by ESG ratings, social credit scoring ratings. And the more these things get, because really we're still in the early stages of this. We're still in the first few years of this being a really popular thing. As this continues to expand out, as the ratings change, because they're not being regulated in any way, they can they could change the system tomorrow if they wanted to. The court, elites could make it anything they want to make it. Uh, as this expands out over time, your world is going to change increasingly more rapidly in line with whatever those ESG scores are. So that if someday you wake up and there's an ESG rating that says that, um, you know, we're going to give you a lower score because you are doing business with people that own gasoline powered cars, then all of the corporations are going to stop doing business with people who have gasoline powered cars. All of the banks are going to stop lending to you, et cetera. If the, it, same thing with free speech. If they put out an ESG score that says, you know, that you're going to get a lower score because X, Y percent of your customer base is saying, uh, is involved in misinformation, whatever that means, or uh, is uh, involved in um, uh, combating racial equity. Again, whatever that means, it can mean whatever they want. Then all of a sudden your world is going to change. The things you say are going to change. The people you do business with is going to change. Your whole life is going to change and it's already starting to happen. This is why Disney is gone woke. This is why you see Major League Baseball uh, uh, protesting and moving the All-Star game because of an election law, an election ID law passed in Georgia. Why does Major League Baseball care about that? Why is Delta Airlines, why do they care about that? Why does Microsoft care about that? Why do they care what Georgia's election ID laws are? The only reason they care is because of this elaborate system of social credit scores, public-private partnerships, massive amounts of money printing, all tied in together to create this incredibly authoritarian, but in a sort of sneaky way that most people don't realize, great reset system of the entire global economy and society. And all you have to do, and you can see it in the book, if you get the book that Glenn and I put together, is look at all of the quotes, quote after quote after quote from influential person involved in this saying, that they're going to they're going to have a reset of the entire global economy they're going to rewrite social contracts they're going to every country must participate every industry must be transformed all over the world not just in Europe but the United States in China everyone has to be involved in it you can find all of the world's most powerful figures saying this sort of thing using the same slogans, using the same marketing slogans for their economic plans, build back better one country after another, all using the same thing. It's because there's close coordination. They're all working together on this. And it's not, it is a conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact at this point. We know that it's happening and there will be no escaping it if we don't stop it now. Yes, just on a side note before we get to the next point, this book, and I have it beside me, has 511 footnotes. You know, the one thing that differs, you know, people like Justin, Glenn, myself, from everyone else is we don't ask you to take our own word for it. I'm not asking you to listen to this show and take everything we have said. 
I'm asking you to, to let this encourage you and to inspire you to do your own research. Question everything we say on this show, on this topic, on other topics, on America, on history. Question us. Question everything we say. Do not take our word for it. But this is 511 footnotes. That is by far, I think, the most biggest bunch of footnotes I've seen for a book this size. You know, I do a lot of research, and I see books, maybe 200 footnotes, maybe 300. This is like 270 pages of a book, and it's got 511 footnotes. Buy the book, get it on Amazon.com, check it out, but also do your own research. You know, listen to what they say, read what they say, listen to this interview, and then go do your own homework. Go to weforum.org. Go to World Economic Forum. Go Google uh, uh John Kerry, go Google everything that's in those links. You'll find them. But I want to just get to the next point because the the, king, the thing that you need to understand is the system is always changing. And I want to give you some news from back home. So a, a buddy of mine sent me this, you know, great article um, about how the EU has agreed on internet rulebook for Google, Facebook, and other tech giants. Oh, this is going to be awesome, right? Nothing bad could come from this, right? And for Americans, yes, that is heavily dosed in sarcasm. Well, they came to an agreement last week on after spending 16 hours of negotiations. 16 hours, my God. Like, how much time do you need to negotiate stuff? Like, I spend time more than 16 hours researching this show on a daily ba- on a weekly basis, and especially this show. They just come up with all these new rules in 16 hours, really? That's all it takes? But basically what it is, is we're going to have a... Uh, a new set of rules. Um, it's basically saying what you can say and what you can say on different platforms. And they're going to basically fine these companies if they break the rules up to 6% of their global turnover. Um, basically, the new rules, this is a quote, the new rules will put to an end to the digital wild west where big platforms set the rules and criminals' content can go viral. Here's where you need to understand definitions. And here's how they can get everyone including you who thinks maybe if you're still of the opinion that this doesn't affect me i want to give you a definition of hate speech because most people will hear hate speech and kind of go should you have hate speech on platforms no but what's the devil is in the details so if you understand english common law which a lot of laws are based from english common law defines hate speech as the following expressions of hatred towards someone on account of that person's color Race, disability, nationality, ethnicity, national national origin, religion, gender assignment, or sexual orientation. Now, most people can listen to that definition and kind of go, I got no problem with that. You know, I don't think anything going against that should be on, on social media or should be on Google. Here's where you have to understand the devil is in the details. Quote, something is a hate incident if the victim or anyone else thinks it was motivated by hostility or prejudice. How scary is that? That is really scary. Really, really scary. Because there is no incident. There's no such thing as an incident where at least someone doesn't believe that it's motivated by one of those things. It's impossible to find one where that isn't the case. There's always somebody saying it's related to, to race or whatever. And of course, even if no one actually believes it. Someone could always say it, and then you end up with it for that reason as well. Absolutely terrifying. And the thing you need to remember is this can come to America. 
You know, we can hide behind the First Amendment and say, we've got the First Amendment, we've a right to free speech. Nothing could ever, ever affect that. Well, the companies can. The companies can. You think this rule isn't going to come to America? You think these type of regulations and legislation isn't coming to America where that's the definition of hate speech? That anyone, and the key words are anyone else, can find you hateful or prejudiced. Do you think that's going to work out for you, Trump supporters? Do you think that's going to vote work out for you if you vote the wrong way or for the wrong party? Do you feel safe? Because they can do that. And also, when you understand the Great Reset, where they do have these laws for companies, and then they make, bring them downstream to other companies, you think Facebook and all these media companies are going to literally do it in Europe and not do it here? Because, by the way, I don't know if you've been on Twitter much lately, but a few of my friends have been censured by the German government because people in Germany are reporting their tweets and these are American political commentators and they've been posting the notice so yeah we've we found your we your tweet has been reported by someone in Germany violating German law really that's coming to us this is why the great reset matters which brings me to my next question Justin do you think there's any limit to the people in power on the great reset is there anything they can't do is there any limit or any place they won't go or is it whatever they see fit? Yeah, I mean, I think that whatever they can get away with, they will get away with. And only until people actually stand up and create rules or laws that prevent that from happening um, or uh, somehow make sure that these people don't have the power that they have, however that looks, I don't see any way that there would, you know, the limit will be whatever it needs to be for them. They're the ones that set the limits because they're the ones with all the power. And that's the really terrifying part of it. I agree. I don't think there is any limit to what these people want to do. They're laying so much groundwork to, for tyranny, for control. And I want to share policy with you just for people in, who are still thinking, you know what, this won't affect me. This is all business. This is all about capitalism and big businesses and big banks. This is not really going to affect my life. I can see this coming for your kids. I think in many ways it already has. But I want to share a policy with Justin and see, can you see, is this actually already here, or do you see this happening in the future? Because I see this happening, where you have an ESG score, an environmental, societal, and governance score. But what will happen is it'll come to the kids. And what will happen is it'll be a case of, you know, let's say you score a test, and you score an 80% on your test. And they'll look at you and kind of go, well, you got 80, but look at where you come from. You know, you have uh, two parents, you're rich, you're white, you're straight, you're, you know, a Trump supporter family or whatever it is. The criteria can change. Think of whatever you want. That 80 is now a 60. And also, let's say if you remove it on the flip side, where you have someone who, let's say, scored a 45 or 50 on a test. And well, they only have one parent and they're a minority. And they don't come from the right part of town. And their family is under the poverty level. And, well, they're very supportive of the green agenda. Well, that 45 or 50 now becomes a 65. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. There, there's no end to what they could theoretically use it for. And we've actually seen in education certain instances where they've modified. They did this under the Obama administration where they were modifying behavioral uh, punishments for kids in large part based on the idea that there were too many African-American kids who were getting harsher punishments. So we need to modify the rules 
so that those schools are not suspending kids and doing other things that we might do in other schools, but we can't do there because it's, it's disproportionately impacting African-Americans or whatever. So they were literally changing the rules for how they were punishing kids in, at least in part based on the racial demographics of the school district or the school in question or whatever. Um, and so we've already seen some degree of that in education. And of course, there's no reason to think that this won't become over time just the standard operating procedure for everything. Because at the end of the day, the rallying cry is always going to be equity, 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 equity. That's one of the big things. And um, how can you have equity if everything is systemically racist and everything is systemically biased towards one group or another group, unless you do things to the system to alter it, to make sure that those advantages are offset by some other advantage that we provide. And how can you do that effectively unless you have some sort of a credit scoring system that makes sure that that's the case, right? I mean, how can you do that? And I would even argue that some of the policies we have in the United States now uh, at the higher ed level for admission standards, we already have that, um, where um, if you are a certain race or a certain gender, you, and this is empirically true, this isn't me just saying this, you can, publicly available statistics, you have an advantage um, so that a African-American student and a white student with identical test scores, identical grades, the African-American student will get the advantage in admissions. That's just a fact. And that's not a little advantage. That's a major, major, major advantage. And so you can see this with law school statistics, medical school statistics. You can see this at the undergrad level. Uh, it varies from school to school, place to place, whatever. But there is an advantage given to people based on race already because of social, uh, because of these things. And, it, and, and actually, you could make the case that an ESG type metric would be a better way of doing that, an even fairer way of doing that, because why should an African-American, let's say, who comes from a family of doctors uh, and has lots of money, have an advantage getting into medical school um, over someone who is maybe uh, Hispanic, but comes from a lower income background with one parent? Well, shouldn't that person get the advantage over the African-American? But under the system we have now, the African-American would get the advantage. So you can see how even common sense people would say, well, I guess if we're going to have this system that we should go even further and have even more metrics and, and do this out. So to some degree, we're already seeing what you're talking about. Now, whether they apply that to people's grades or they just apply it to admissions after the fact or class ranking or however... Is it really so shocking that a system that awards people in part based on those things to get into college would expand that out a little bit into other areas? No, I don't think it's shocking at all that they would do that. And it will happen all across the, the society, not just in education, but in everything. I think that's the long-term plan. It may not actually happen. We might stop it, but I think that's the long-term plan. I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show who are not vaccinated. And if you're still on the fence about the Great Reset now, you know, this won't affect me. Just ask yourself one question. Everything we've spoken about earlier on about the banks, insurance companies, all the, the rules of how they're going to do ESG scores. Just a quick question for you. You're unvaccinated. For whatever reason you've decided the vaccine is not for you. How do you think your life is going to work out with the ESG scores? Do you think you're going to be rated favorably or do you think you're going to be rated negatively? Do you think you're going to have the same access to finance? 
Do you think you're going to have the same possibilities as everyone else does who is vaccinated to get jobs? Do you think you're going to have the same opportunities to start a business, to get licenses in businesses? Or do you think that the fact that you're unvaccinated, you're the enemy, remember, you're the enemy if you're unvaccinated, they're going to let you live. This is something you need to think about. But finishing up for this, for today's show, Justin, to anyone who's listening who thinks, well, this is just another right-wing conspiracy, can you say what this is and respond to those people who would say this is just nothing more than a conspiracy and you know you're you're just you're just lying so i think the biggest reason that people should care about the great reset is that there's i don't think there's ever been a single uh i don't think there's ever been an attempt this big with this many powerful figures that is this well documented that aims to rework all of society that is so openly saying that this is the purpose to rework all of society, to push the reset button on capitalism. That's what the great reset is alluding to pushing the reset button on the entire global economy, where they're openly saying that they're going to rewrite social contracts, where they're openly saying we're going to have a social credit scoring system, where they're openly saying every industry must be transformed, where they're openly saying that every country must participate, that this is the language that they're using. Never have we seen an attempt at something like this where the people involved are so open that they're going to do it. And all I'm asking people to do is to just look at the evidence and take these people at their own word. Don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to believe me. Just read what they say and believe them. That's all I'm asking you to do is to believe them. And if you just believe them, then you'll be concerned by this. You'll know that it's real. Just look at the evidence They've really, in a lot of ways, made it easy for me because I don't have to come up with all, I mean, it's a very elaborate system and there's lots of details to it and moving parts and everything. Yes. And it was hard to put that together, but their, their intentions are so plainly stated in a way that I've really never seen before. Usually politicians do a better job of lying. These people are very open about what they want. And so all that I ask people to do is look at the evidence for yourself Check the primary sources for yourself. As you said, 500 plus uh, citations in the book with Glenn Beck. There are many more. You can go to the World Economic Forum website, read articles for yourself. Just start reading articles. You're going to find all kinds of crazy stuff there. It's not hard to do. Um, These people are meeting at events like one that they had very recently called the World Government Summit. That was the name of it. The World Government Summit. (laughs) I mean, you can't make this stuff up. There was a panel discussion at the World Government Summit hosted by someone from CNN asking if it's time for a new world order. You can't make this stuff up. It's that crazy. So all you got to do is just all I ask is people to look at the evidence for themselves and take them at their word. Believe what they're saying. When they say they want to rewrite the social contract and change your life forever, they mean it. Just believe them. Uh, you don't have to believe me. And I think if, if everyone just did that and took the time to, to take this seriously, even just for an afternoon, they would believe at least enough of it to understand that there's something really serious here and that it's worth their time and attention. And, and I think that's all you can ask for from anybody. If you're on a cliff right now and you're listening to this show and you're like, there's no way we can survive this. I ask you and I beg you, please listen to next week's show. Because this has been a lot of fun for me. I've enjoyed talking about the Great Reset, talking about the MMT, talking about the fear of climate change and coronavirus, Justin. 
But next week's show is the one I'm really looking forward to. We're going to spend the whole show talking about solutions because America, there are plenty of solutions. Until next Saturday, I ask you to please go check out Justin Haskins. He's Justin T. Haskins on Twitter. Go check out Heartland Institute. You can obviously find me on social media as well, at Freedom's Disciple on Twitter and Facebook. Go check out the book if you haven't already done so. It's The Great Reset by Justin Haskins and Glenn Beck on Amazon.com. And we finish off by saluting you, the American people. Never, ever forget the sentiments of Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. You're good people. You're noble people, but also you're patriots wanting to fight for your country. If you work and you fight, you will beat the Great Reset and every tyrannical element that's with it. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.